Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, media strategist, and health coach helping you live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm so excited to share with you my conversation with Nina Rao. Nina learned traditional chanting from her grandfather in South India when she was nine years old, but really started chanting regularly when she met Krishna Das in New York in 1996. Since then, she's been traveling all over the world with Krishna Das. I was very lucky to get to see her with Krishna Das in a full band in Hawaii just before the pandemic. So, and uh, of course, it was before Ram Das left his body. And it was such a beautiful experience being there with her and singing the Hanuman Chalisa and so many other beautiful chants. You can also check her out on two albums. One is called Antara Yami, Knower of All Hearts. And then she has an album called Anubhav, which we talk a bit about in the conversation. So we just get some time to talk about her path through life, her practice, her guru, Sri Siddhiman, and meeting her guru. And what it means to her to live in your purpose. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And please check out Nina at ninaraochant.com and her organization, savingwildtigers.org. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, Nina Rao. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hello, Paula Crossfield. I'm so excited <laughs> to be on your podcast. Thank you really for taking the time. It is so fun to have conversations like this. And I've been looking forward to talking to you. And maybe what we can start out with is just talking about your path to Kirtan. How did you get to this being your full-time job? Because I know before you you worked on Wall Street and you took people on safaris. So can you talk a little bit about that, that journey? Sure. I certainly didn't think of this as a career path, I can tell you that. I really fell into chanting again after having had an experience of it when I was a kid with my grandfather. You know, I come from India and it was very much part of our family tradition to chant. But we also traveled abroad. My father was posted to different countries and so I didn't have a lot of connection to the traditional practices that were happening in my grandfather's home for many years. But there's always been that thread, I suppose, through my life where we've been through to temples. I read certain spiritual books like Ramayana and Mahabharata and the stories of Krishna, sort of on my own, actually. My parents were very focused on us getting a good education and having a career in the West because they felt, especially my father, that India just didn't have opportunities for women. So he wanted us to move to America, which we did. When I first came here, I did work on Wall Street. I worked on the trading floor of two different banks. And it was a really wonderful training ground for me, actually, 
to kind of figure out what I don't, didn't want to do. I had still no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And when I look back, I just think about people are people wherever you are in whatever field you might be working in. But the subject matter just, it was interesting to me to some level, but the kind of work I was, hours I was working, you know, I just burned out. So it wasn't for me. But what I had done was uh, spent some amount of time in East Africa going on wildlife safaris because my father had been posted in Kenya for some years. Mm. And when I first went there, I was so struck by the beauty and I realized that if I did only this for the rest of my life, I would be really happy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really hard to spend time in the bush all the time unless you decide you're going to be a a park ranger or run a lodge, which is not what I was going to do at that moment. But after some years, uh, when I quit the bank and I was kind of searching around for something to do. I was introduced to someone who was opening a safari company and asked if, if I would like to work with him. So I did that. So in some ways, I almost feel like it was the entryway to a way of sitting with oneself quietly because so much of the mm-hmm. time that we spent there, you know, going bird watching or sitting by a watering hole, you know, it takes a lot of a sense of just settling into the moment to really enjoy that. And I realized how much I love that. But what actually happened in terms of coming to Kirtan was that I started practicing yoga at my gym. My yoga teacher, who was from Jiva Mukti at the time, had a yoga retreat and she invited Krishnadas to sing for the satsang in the evening. So we're talking about 1996 now. I hadn't been chanting, you know, I was in my early 30s and I went to this yoga retreat and I didn't know what to expect when it said satsang with Krishna Das. I tell this story a lot, which is that I really felt like it maybe was going to be a failed Indian musician. And so I really wasn't going to stay. <laughs> I had come up with all kinds of excuses in my mind. But there was something about that moment where I saw on the side table was a little photograph of Hanumanji and a, a little photograph of Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, with a candle. And I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. And, and I waited for Krishnadas to arrive. And then my heart sank because I thought, okay, this is not a failed Indian musician. <laughs> This is this is like a white guy with his sweatpants and a black t-shirt and, you know, a guy with a plastic drum walking in. And I thought, you know, I had so many, we all have biases, you know, and prejudices. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what it was going to be, but I thought I would stay. I was curious. And as soon as he started singing, I know that that was the moment when I turned back onto this path of chanting because the next thing that I remember was that I hadn't left the satsang. In fact, I was sitting right in front of him. You know, I literally moved from the back of the room to be very close to him and really just, I think it might be other than being out in nature and being amongst wildlife, it was the only other time where I felt so drawn in, in such an intense way. And I'd had that feeling as a kid when I had chanted with my grandfather just the one time. 
But I guess I, as a seeker, I found my path because all I wanted to do after that was to chant with him. And he used to chant at Jiva Mukti in those days on Monday nights. He had a free satsang. So I made sure I was there every Monday, no matter what. And we got to be friends and I wanted to find out so much about his guru and, you know, just what was pouring through him as he was chanting. So that's how it happened. And I, I basically never have stopped chanting with him. I just said that to him the other day. <laughs> and he said, not yet. <laughs> I said, yeah, not yet. 20 some odd years later, you know. Beautiful. So, I love that. Yeah. I saw on your website that you had written, chanting is my vehicle, my path and the destination. So I'm curious, can you describe what happens to you, what you feel when you're chanting? I think the reason why I wrote that was, you know, we all do some kind of practice. We end up doing some kind of practice when we come to a place where we realize that we need help. We need help to meet the challenges that come to us every moment. Some of us, and I consider myself one of the lucky ones, have received the guidance to actually do some kind of practice. You know, a lot of the times it'll come to us naturally because of our samskaras, perhaps. But then for many people, they don't really have this, this vehicle. I found that also while thinking about the path, one can set very lofty goals about this, where you want this path to take you, you know, nirvana or there's all kinds of terms. And honestly, for me, Paula, it's if I can just live each day in a good way. And what does that mean in a good way? You know, give my best effort to whatever it is that I'm doing. Try to do it with the most open heart possible. Try to create a little space between my reactive behavior and any feelings that might send me into a spiraling situation. And try to just help help myself, help my family, help for my friends, help whatever I can, just kind of be of service in, in a certain way. And by doing practice, it brings you into a very grounded state over time. You know, obviously there are times when we might feel a lot of anguish or grief or anxiety. And at that point, if you try to grab onto practice, it's not necessarily going to work at that moment. But as we continue to do it on a daily basis, we start to loosen ourselves up and make ourselves flexible and pliable and almost translucent in such a way that everything that comes to us will come through us. So we just move through our lives, you know, everything that's happening. Don't push too hard. Don't pull too hard. If that's my destination, if that's the result of doing the practice, that's good. That's my destination. So for me, the way I think about chanting is, is that if I can find the place in which I want to look, the place I want to go, create a refuge for myself, and also a means toward an end, it's chanting. So therefore, all those things. I can't help but want to talk about your Guruji, who's there behind you, Sri Siddhima, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, because you, I heard you say 
in one of the interviews that you've done, she was the one that really encouraged to you to have a practice and that that's how you get things done. I think that's what you said. So can you talk about that too? I uh, I met Sidima because after I met Krishnadas, I felt a great longing for having a teacher. I had wished that Neem Karoli Baba was alive at the time that I heard about him from Krishnadas, but Krishnadas informed me that he had left the body in 1973. So that was 23 years before I had met Krishnadas. In that search, I asked Krishnadas where it was that he had been with his guru, which was in Kenchi, in the foothills of the Himalayas. So I said, well, I'm just going to go to the temple, because if something happens, if that's where it happened for you, then I'm going to take this pilgrimage and go there. It was then that he revealed to me, he said, well, if you're going, then you should meet this saint. Her name is Siddhima. And she has been with us all these years in, in our hearts. She helped us go through the grief of having lost Maharaji in the body. And she holds the love, you know, very strongly. You should meet her. So I was very happy for that to happen. And I went two years after I met Krishna. So I had already started chanting and the practice had already come to me by being reminded about the power of the practice and of chanting. And as I kept chanting, I kept exploring more. And Krishnadas had given me books about Maharaji, which I started to read. And as a result, you know, I just kept exploring other saints, reading different things, and finding out that there was this whole world of practice that existed, even by doing yoga, because I was taking yoga classes at Jiva Mukti at that point. And the school was very open to and encourage the students to find out what's going on in the world of practice, explore, experience. So I had already kind of reached that determination that practice would be, is what I wanted to do as a way to fortify myself. I had heard Krishnas's first album, which is called One Track Heart, and I listened to it over and over again. It was the only recording that he had in those days. The Hanuman Chalisa was on that album. That was the first time I heard it. Even though I was raised in India, it wasn't part of our South Indian tradition. And now I believe in India, people are chanting it all over the country, but it wasn't in my family tradition. I heard it and I was very drawn to it. And um, the language isn't so hard for me because it's, you know, I speak some Hindi and so it was familiar to hear the words. And and Krishnas did a beautiful translation of it, and I felt very drawn to it. And what happened was uh, somebody threw a f surprise 50th birthday party for him. And back then, I guess his birthday, 50th birthday must have been in 1997. So one year after I met him. And so as a surprise for him, a couple of us decided that we would learn the Hanuman Chalisa and sing it for the him at the surprise birthday party. Which is funny because years later, I, I found out from him and he tells his story a lot that the way that they were going to try to find a way to be in Maharaji's presence was to sing the Hanuman Chalisa for him. So it was just an interesting little thing that that was how I wanted to make that connection also with, with Krishnadas and therefore Maharaji and, and everything. So when I went to India in 1998, 
I asked Siddhima, I said, Ma, what seva can we do in the temple? And she said, you know, I thought maybe we can clean, we can cook, cut vegetables, you know, do something. And and she said, no, 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 the best seva you can do is to sing the name. So Kenchi, they have a little room where the kirtanwalas sit and they sing the Mahamantra all day. And she knew that it was something my friend and I, we really enjoy doing. So she said, just go do that. And she said, after tea, maybe go to Maharaji's temple at four o'clock in the afternoon and chant Hanuman Chalisas. That was great for us because we had actually learned it and um, <laughs> the year before. And so that became a very core part of my practice. Also, what happens in the temple there is there's Arti in the morning and Arti in the evening at sunrise and sunset. And Prayers are chanted in the temple all the time. And I was, again, very drawn to chanting those prayers. But over the years that I met Siddhima, she, you know, I translated for her. So I was able to be there for a lot of the darshans with the Westerners. Every time someone had a question and or they needed help for something, you know, her prescription was to do prayers. She would say to me often, she said, and she would, you know, really look at me earnestly and she'd say, Nina, if we don't develop a regular discipline or a practice, what are we going to do? You know, we, it's very important. And I realize is that doing the practice, and she would say, whatever mood you're in, it doesn't matter. You don't have to do it. She'd say, take your anger, take your tears, take your anxiety to mm. Maharaji's feet with your practice. You didn't have to do anything. It didn't matter what was going on. Just develop the practice the discipline to go do it. And then ultimately, and she didn't say, and then we'll see what happens. That's not what she said. She said, just do that. You know, if we went to her with any difficult situation, she would say, don't worry, we're doing prayers for you tonight. And I always felt that if Ma could say that, if that's what she's going to do, and that's what she's telling us to do, then we better do it. Yeah, such a beautiful story. And I feel like this is a really good time to play a clip from your last album, um, and particularly the the Ramaya Sri Ram Vandana. So this is kind of an intro into the Hanuman Chalisa, right? They're kind of tied. Um, I sing it that way. They're not necessarily uh, tied together, but it is one of the prayers in our temple prayer book. And I loved it so much because it's a prayer to Ram. And I always imagine... That's what Hanumanji is praying. Okay, so let's listen to that clip and then we'll return.
hear you talk a little bit more about finding a guru. So could you talk a little bit about meeting your guru for the first time and just what that experience was of recognizing her as your teacher? Before I actually met Sidima, I had started to visit saints when they came through New York, like, you know, going to see Amma when she would come and a couple of other people who had come through town. I think what I wanted so much was to feel that very deep connection that Krishnadas expressed when he talked about his time with Maharaji. I was searching for that. So when I met Siddhima, I had this feeling that everything was going to be fine. I was going to arrive in Kenchi and I would see her and she would just pull me in and that would be it and everything would be clear and it'd be fantastic. And when I look back, I realize that there are so many beginnings. And I think when one is, when something is a beginning, I can actually take it back further, take it back further, take it back further to so many other experiences in my life. But when I did actually meet her, I saw a photograph of her before I left. When I got there, I really was expecting that we would look each other in the eye. There would be thunderbolt. And it wasn't like that at all. <laughs> She was sitting kind of quietly in the room. She was sitting with her person who was with her all the time is Jivantima. She was another mother who had been with Maharaji for many years and took care of him, one of Maharaji's devotees. And she just sort of welcomed us. And But what struck me when I came into the room was that it wasn't a personal connection in the way that I imagined it would be. What I felt was this feeling of great presence, the same presence that I felt when I first heard Krishna sing. It's an expansive kind of feeling. It's deep and expansive at the same time. It was the same feeling I had when I was young and I heard my grandfather chant and we chanted with him and our, our little the people in the village in the little satsang that we'd had together. It was a similar feeling I had when there are times when I've been out in nature and felt really connected 
and I think I expected it because our minds, you know, we always thinking about things so much, but I, I thought it was going to be something else until about three days later after I got there. When I first greeted her, she said, Oh, good. You've come from far, you know, go and, you know, have your meal and get settled in your room and, you know, we'll see you tomorrow. That was kind of it. <laughs> so it was fine. So and then we had been told to go and sit with the Kirtanwala. So we sat with the Kirtanwalas and it was beautiful. I mean, just arriving in Kenchi, going around the bend of that mountain and seeing this beautiful temple nestled in the valley, I knew I was already coming home. I knew that. And I was thrilled to be there, so thrilled. But the temple office had said to us, okay, so the rules of the ashram are that you can stay here for three nights and then you have to go you know, find another place to stay. You can come back and visit, you know, come and do prayers and take your prasad here and everything, but you can't stay here. Those, those are the rules of the ashram. I said, okay, that's fine. And so on the, after the third night, I was talking to my friend Ambika, who I went to India with, and she, I said, Ambika, let's get up early. Let's pack. Let's go to Nainital, put all our stuff in the hotel and come back so that we can spend the whole day here rather than, because we had to clear all our stuff out of the room and there was no place to keep it. And I didn't want to arrive late in Nainital looking for a hotel room. She was taking uh, her time to pack and I was just kind of sitting there. And there was a knock on the door. It was very early in the morning, before five, six, something like that. And it was my dear elder guru's sister. Her name is Jaya. And Jaya is the one who took care of Siddhima for many, many years. She was her personal attendant. And she also translated a lot because she's fluent in English and is used to Westerners. Except when I got there, she would say, okay, you do the translating. I'm going to go do something else. But she was around us a lot and I, and so helpful all the time. So she came and I said, Jaya, what's the matter? And she said, and she looked kind of disheveled, which she never did. She was always very nicely put together, you know, neat. And she said, I don't know. Ma didn't even let me have chai. She said, hurry, hurry, quickly go down. Cause our room was like down in the front of the temple entrance, not in the back quarters where, where Ma was staying. So she, Jaya would have had to come all the way across the temple courtyard to find us. And she said, hurry, hurry, you're going to go into, they're leaving now. Tell them they don't have to leave. Tell them they don't have to leave. They can stay as long as they want. It occurred to me, like it really, that's where I understood at that moment. It was the start of understanding that she really knew everything that was going on inside of us. You know, it was a very practical moment, but at the same time, I saw that she could see. And so it was the beginning then of all the years that I spent going back to see her and trusting that this was my place, that I would be safe, where I could take my heart, that she knew everything that was happening. And whatever she said to me would be the clearest and the most direct answer to my question. So beautiful. And it's so nice to have a teacher, you know, and I think what I'm curious about, you know, this podcast is about living in your purpose. It's about finding your purpose, which maybe you would call Dharma. But how do having a practice, having a teacher, how do those help us to find our purpose? First, I'll say that about having a teacher is that 
while I feel very grateful that I had these years with Siddhima and that she helped to guide me. You know, at first I told you when I first met her, my feeling was this feeling of presence. It was after that that I developed a personal relationship with her where I could talk to her about my life and, you know, we could correspond with each other. But mostly, I you know, I only saw her once a year for a few days. Mm. So the rest of the time, we kind of have to find our own way. But which is why I think that the idea of practice is so important, because if you have this one constant in your life, and the type of practice that she was talking about is repeating the name, the divine name, in the form of the Hanuman Chalisa or Kirtan or any kind of prayers that we might want to engage in. Now, this all comes from a very ancient tradition in India that was transmitted to the seers, to the rishis who, after doing intense tapasya or sadhana, this had been revealed to them as the way to find the truth, the larger truth, you know, the truth that we're all connected, the truth is that we're all made, that we're all love, that we're all one, which is what Maharaji said and what, what Siddhima said to me. Having her in my life, I, I feel very blessed that I had that. But now that she's not in the body anymore, it doesn't mean that her teachings don't go on. And I believe that if one doesn't find a guru in the body in that way, or a teacher, as you like to say, the teachings are available. They're all around us all the time. We learn from the people that we connect with. We learn from books. We learn from actions in our life, how we move through the day. Having the spiritual teacher was a great blessing for me, but I mostly because I think she showed me by the way she lived her life. What is the best way to live? For me. And maybe for everyone, but certainly for me. I, I feel like <laughs> everything I've learned from her about the way she was, you know, she was fully surrendered to her guru, named Karoli Baba. So that no matter what came along, she always was so at one with him, that she was never at odds with what was happening. It was all in the flow. She was completely surrendered to it. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. And, and it's not something that we can grasp with our minds. You know, it's how it is that we're going to actually move through each moment that comes to us. And when the moments come pass through us, we're still here and we're still standing. And with maybe an even more open heart and more equanimity, more compassion. You know, she showed us all these things. She was so considerate and so kind and so thoughtful, but so firm also. She taught me a lot about boundaries and, you know, how to, but, and when I say this, it's not she, like she gave any exposition about any of this. Yeah. She would just have a simple question. You know, she'd say, oh, so, such and such, what have you been doing? You know, I've been doing this, doing that, doing this. And she said, so did Uma get into a good school? You know, she would ask me a simple question about my daughter, for example. And it would just make me understand that one of the priorities she had given to me for when I had taken my daughter to see her was, you know, make sure she has a good education, make sure that she's uh, just raise her to be a capable adult. 
she already knows everything and do puja with her. That was another very big thing she said, but she said, you know, bring your child into your practice, which I did. Back to the purpose. As I said in the beginning, at this stage in my life, if you were to ask me like, what is my purpose? The larger purpose, as I said, was to live my life in the best way possible. Okay. And that can include so many things. Not to be a burden on others. So take care of myself, be capable, find a way to pay my rent, feed myself, take care of my health, and extend that to my family and my friends and my extended satsang and everybody, my neighbors, the whole world, you know. How we do that, like what particular purpose it might be. We might be a teacher, we might be a cashier in a grocery store, we might be someone who landed a, a spaceship on Mars, you know, I could be anything. But how do we do that in the best way possible? To me is my purpose is to try and let everybody be who they are in the most accepting way. But at the same time, if something doesn't feel right, and I feel like I have a decision that has to be made, or a path to not take or to take, I have to have the clarity to make the right decision that's in alignment with my purpose. So the practice has helped me do that. I think it's very important that if we take a few minutes out of our day to sit and do some practice, we create the space in our minds to let our reactive behavior and obscurations like feelings of jealousy or selfishness or anger or pride, vindictiveness, anything that we might want to call negative. And why do we say it's negative? Because it only hurts us. It hurts right. us first. And it stops you from living your purpose. The practice has helped immensely because it's with that that we can learn to let go of these things as they come to us. And because they're thoughts, you know, and we don't want to feel negative. We don't want to have these negative, but it just arises. These, this is what we're born with, what to do. Did you know that this podcast has been made possible by listener support? If you like what you're hearing and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash weave your bliss. There are lots of great gifts, including a weekly astrology update from me and a monthly live new moon circle. Thanks for your support. I love that you talked about your daughter and I, I want to ask you about bringing your daughter into your practice and what that looks like, yeah. you know, because I think motherhood, fatherhood, you know, people who are listening, they may have big responsibilities in life. Like that is something that we navigate and, you know, how do we bring that into our purpose and to our practice? I go back to what she said to me, what Ma said to me. So when, when Uma was born, I took her, uh, her father and I took her to Kenchi to see Siddhi Ma. She was four and a half months old. I wanted very much for Ma to give her blessings. You know, I just wanted to, to be there in person with her. So I just sort of, I brought her into the room and we were sitting in the darshan room and I put her on the floor. She was just lying there looking at Ma for a while during our darshan and, and, uh, Ma said, she said, so you wanted to get married, you wanted to have a child, Maharaji gave you that. 
And she said, now what you have to do is to all you have to do. She, he, she said about Uma, she said she already comes with all the wisdom. She already knows everything is what she said. She said, your job as her mother is to love her and raise her to be a capable adult. This was very, that was one of her instruction. And that meant making sure she's healthy, having a good education in whatever way that was for me. She just, that, that's all that she was saying. And she said, when you do your puja, have her in your lap. And so the thing is, is that the whole time that I was pregnant, I was chanting a lot and I used to drum for Krishna Das back in the day. So all she heard was like the drum, she's right here, you know. <laughs> and uh, just the month before she was born, uh, I had been singing and chanting, you know, 108 Hanuman Chalisas on January 1st and she was born a month later. So she was primed, you know. She And Ma said to me, she said, look at all of you, you had to wait till you were in your 30s to come to Maharaji's home. But look at these babies, they're already here. Their samskaras are such that they're they're already here. Mm. So, but that doesn't mean that if you have the samskaras necessarily, it's going to flow through. There are many people whose children will be part of the practice and then they may leave for a while. They have to learn, they have to grow up into their own life. And so one of the things that I, I did for Uma was that we always, her father is a devotee of Amma, so we always took her to India and also to be in the satsang. She was always, she grew up in Amma satsang and also in my satsang and crossed over a lot. There was always chanting in our house, always. And so she grew up, the first thing she, first steps she took, she was walking around with an ektara in her hand. I remember that so well. It's like a little stringed instrument and she mm. was walking around and singing with the, her first steps without holding onto the table. After that, we didn't really teach her anything. We didn't say, okay, so now you have to sit here and you got to learn this. But soon I realized that she actually knew the words to the Hanuman Chalisa. She just heard it so much, you know. <laughs> and we did take her to the temple. She, you know, she came to Kenchi all the years when she was young. After a while, when she was in middle school, I remember she was having, but I never, never forced her to be like, if, if we were chanting and she said, well, can I read my book instead? And so you go read your book, you know, it's okay. I just tried to keep her close to the practice as much as possible. So even if she wasn't sitting up straight and doing everything, it didn't matter. She was just in it, in the whole, the feeling of it. She later asked me, you know, she said, so mom, what can I do? Something was happening. And I said, well, here's something you can do. And, you know, I gave her a mala and I said, why don't you try this? Like if you're feeling anxious before you go to sleep at night, you know, think of any one of the mantras that you like. You've heard so many of them and try to just, you know, count it out on a mala. So slowly, you know, she came to me. Now she's in college and she's in her in her dorm. One of the things that she wanted to pack when she went was an altar. Beautiful. I didn't say anything to her. You know, she 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 said so. Do you have a puja cloth? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so she has an altar in her room, you know, I, I don't know. But I do think it's very important to be open with the practice. Like, let it be part of your home life. The idea of prasad is very nice. Like that when you're, let's say you're cooking food or you or have a specific piece of fruit or something like that. Like that's one of the things I would do with her. I'd say, let's offer this at the altar. And then do a Hanuman Chalisa, and then she would have prasad. So the 
idea of making an offering was already there from the beginning. I think forcing children is is not a good idea. But if it's true to yourself, then they will naturally imbibe it, you know, and it'll come to them later. Maybe not as a teenager, maybe much later, but it's there for them. And they'll recognize that as a place of refuge. I love that. I love that story. That was so nice to hear. And I think so helpful for people who are trying to figure out a good balance, you know, for how to work with their kids or how to be with their kids around their practice. Would you talk a little bit about somebody who maybe wants to start a practice with chanting? What would you suggest? And I know you have a bunch of great resources on your website as well, but just some words of wisdom from you about that. If we weren't in a COVID era, I would say something else, (laughs) which is go to your nearest yoga studio because most likely there's a group of people sitting and chanting together. This practice of kirtan is nama sankirtan, which is you chant the name of the divine with community. And you take the help of the people around you by listening and chanting back. It's helpful when you do practice, even if you're meditating or you go to yoga class, you know, you feel that that energy, there's a energy that comes when you do practice with others. Since that's probably the last thing (laughs) that's going to be available to us as we come out of quarantine, singing in a a small room with a bunch of people without a mask is probably not going to happen for a long time. I will say that while I started chanting with Krishnadas, I really immersed myself in the chanting at home because he would sing on Monday nights, but there was the rest of the days of the week where I would have his CD on and I would sing. I would sing two CDs. And now there's like a multitude of CDs from everybody in the universe. Including There's you. a lot of them. <laughs> I have two. <laughs> I have two. Um, but I also listen to a lot of Indian chanting. I like traditional chanting from India as well, but there are so many. And you just have to find, you know, what calls to your heart. I think it's very important to explore. Exploring is very important. Explore. And and we have so much. We have Spotify, we have YouTube, we have Pandora, we have just turn it on and listen. And of course, there's, again, so many people doing things online. I mean, I'm chanting online. We've all been chanting virtually for over a year now. And it's a strange (laughs) thing because used to be we would all be sitting in a room together and I could hear everybody. And the form that it's taken now is that I'm chanting. I listen to myself and then I imagine everybody else chanting. But you can do that. You know, you you can feel people when you come together to do a practice like that. So if you can find a way to even do it virtually that way, because there's a lot of it, there's a lot of free stuff on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube as well. That's if you want to sing. But in terms of just the repetition of the name, there are other forms. You can also do simple japa, which is repetition of the mantra to yourself as a means for a meditative state to arise. You know, for some people, it's not so easy to sit and watch your breath alone necessarily. I find japa very helpful practice, which is 
you can very simply pick a mantra, let's just say Om Namah Shivaya or something, you know, I don't know. And just simply just repeat, you know, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, like quietly to yourself and count it out a hundred times. Simple. And just do that as a practice. I mean, how it takes five minutes. It's nothing. And the more you do it, the more you will want to do it. And then you might get bored. And then you have to tell yourself, well, it's a practice and it's good to have a discipline no matter what's happening. So let me just do it. Even if my mind is, you know, because your thoughts are always going to come arise. But the more we do the practice, the more we can go deeper into the practice. If we don't do it, then there's no way. I love too what you were saying about this moment in time, having to imagine the other people singing. You know, I feel like there's, we're going to have it really deep during this time when we're isolated, you know, and and I think the fruits of that, there's going to be a refinement that happens so that when we do come back together, it's going to be really beautiful and powerful. I mean, that's what I'm hoping for anyway. We'll see what it's going to be like when we come back together. I I imagine the universe has been here for a lot longer than we can think. So things will be as they are. But imagining this practice of just feeling others in the chanting can start to expand outside of the chanting. What happens is that you bring it into your daily life and you start to feel how another person might be feeling or that they're even there. Maybe that we can even get out of our own heads for just a minute and consider that what's happening isn't happening to us. It's just happening and we happen to be there. And oftentimes we're reacting to a situation thinking that we're a victim of the situation or that we're the doer of the situation. We can turn it the other way around. The more we spend time just feeling the sense of other and then dissolving the sense of other into a feeling of oneness, that's sort of in the chanting practice, that feeling of just being with others, whether you can hear them or not, will help us, I think. It helps me. Purposefully thinking about it, no, you're not thinking, well, now I'm going to sit, I'm going to think about how everybody else is feeling in the world. It's not that. It will naturally arise as you interact and you go about your day. I think it's helpful to do that in our imagination, to actually imagine. Of course, you know, you don't want to make anything happen. I just want to say this too. When you're chanting, it's not that you have to think about anything in particular. The only thing that you should be thinking about is I'm doing this practice and I'm going to repeat this mantra. And you'll find yourself repeating the mantra. And then in a, in a couple of seconds, you'll realize, oh, I've been repeating the mantra. And at the same time, I just added five things to my grocery list. <laughs> I also realized that I hadn't uh, cleaned the cat litter box and many other things have already gone through your mind at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. So then you just recognize that that happened and come back to the mantra again. So that might be the only thing that's happening and that's fine. While I'm saying all these things about, you know, I imagining other people, 
I am on one level and on a, on another level, I'm just coming back to the chanting. But because the space is created that I know that people are doing it with me. I mean, I don't know if they're doing, they could have their cameras off and I don't know what they're doing, but I'm feeling that space that everybody's plugged in at that moment and doing the practice together, however they might be doing it. So could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Save Wild Tigers and why you started it? Because I, I want to know more about the work that you're doing, the kind of activism work and, and how, how that kind of feeds into your purpose. Savingwildtigers.org. Because there are other organizations with similar names like Save the Tiger and so, so forth. But this is savingwildtigers.org. This work started back in 1998 or 1999. I told you my father had been posted in Kenya. I went to visit him. I was, I was living with my first husband in India um, at the time. And he and I went to visit my parents in Kenya. My husband at the time was an avid naturalist. I had never been out in the bush before. He had been in the jungles of India and my mother-in-law introduced me to the stories of Jim Corbett. So Jim Corbett was a British guy who lived in India back in the days uh, when the British were in India. He worked for the government and he worked in the forest and his actual job was to track down man-eating tigers that were mm -hmm. disturbing people in the villages. But he loved wildlife so much. And he wrote these beautiful books about leopards and tigers that my mother-in-law shared with me when I was married at the time. I was young. I was 20 when I got married the first time. So uh, that had already entered into my life that way. So when I went to Kenya and we, we went out on safari, my husband and I, and I received like a, it's not, it's like a, 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 a memory. It comes back to, you know, I, I, I landed I set foot on the tarmac in Nairobi and I knew that this place I've been to before. I, 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 I love this place and I felt it and I always have since then. We went back there a couple of times and uh, we were out in the bush the whole time, but I was working in the, I started working in the bank after that and my life took another turn. When I quit the bank and I started working for this person, I didn't have a purpose. <laughs> I just want to say <laughs> that. I just, I was just trying to figure it out. I didn't know what I was doing, you know. I just knew that the bank wasn't working for me. And so my father said, well, so there's this friend of mine, because my dad worked with the airlines, and uh, he said, there's a friend of mine who wants to open a safari company in New York. And since you're not working right now, maybe this would be interesting to you because you loved going on safari so much. That's how it happened. I said, oh, that sounds like fun. So we opened this little office in Nairobi and worked out of, I mean, in New York and worked out of his apartment and basically put together tours to send people to Africa. But when I started doing that, I also started traveling to Africa. And it was then that I started reading about conservationists and their work in East Africa and Southern Africa. And I met with a lot of people who were on the ground there who were doing incredible work. And I ended up actually opening my own wildlife safari company because I wanted to do it in a very specific way so that the proceeds would go partially towards supporting wildlife conservation, but also the tours would be 
a lot more educational. They were recreational, but they were also educational, the people who were really interested in, in learning about wildlife. And then I had also started going to India. And I thought, why wouldn't I want to include India in this? And um, going to Kenchi and like driving through those forests and and the tiger. So what I started to do was to research about wildlife in India. Those were the days when there wasn't a lot of stuff online, but I knew about one author who had written about the tiger and he was very famous. I uh, wrote him a letter and I said, I'm coming to India and uh, I'd really like to talk to you about the work that you've been doing. So he said, yes. So I went to see him in Delhi. When I went to see him, I realized that, you know, you just have to show interest and then your purpose will unfold for you. He was so welcoming. He introduced me to all kinds of people and told me about a tiger conference that was going to happen in London the next year. So I spent all my time just reading you know, papers that were being published by these scientists. And I went to the conference in London. And that's where I met all these incredible scientists who are doing work on the ground in India. Not only scientists, also the government of India was very involved in preserving the tigers on the ground in India. I don't know. One thing led to the other. I met people in New York. We set up these wonderful fundraisers at the Museum of Natural History. And then this whole series, Land of the Tiger, came out on PBS. And and then I also had the ability to take people into the forest with me. I took them. We went with naturalists and we went, I arranged talks with the conservationists who were on the ground in India and people who traveled there were able to see what the kind of work that was going on. And so I set it up with, in the simplest way. I have my co-chair is a person named Sunil Somalwar and he's a physics professor at Rutgers. He came up to me when I was, when I had put on this event at the Museum of Natural History and he said, I really want to do this with you. So when we created this entity, we decided that every dollar that's raised was going to go directly to the field. So that was our first decision because there are other organizations. No doubt they need to exist, but they're very large and they have very high administrative costs. A lot of the money that's raised goes towards those at admin costs. So we wanted to keep it really small. We wanted to raise money for very specific projects that we were interested in India that were related to preservation of natural habitat. But also, because in India, population is so large, there are many people who come in conflict with wildlife because they live right up against the wildlife reserves. Happens here, mm -hmm. too. So we had to find a way to support projects that also help alleviate their suffering because they do suffer. Their crops are destroyed. Sometimes they have injuries because the wild animals have to come out into the area where the humans live. And also educating, educating the youngsters of India to honor and revere this wilderness areas as something that if we lose it, we're never going to get it back. We cannot recreate it. So this is where the knowledge lies, is in nature as it is. We can't, you know, so if we preserve it, we have a chance of at least it being able to regenerate itself. So we, we spend a lot of time just nowadays, I'm working a lot with a, a, an, a, an agency called Center for Wildlife Studies in India. 
had a relationship with the director for all these years, ever since I went to that first conference in 2000. And his daughter is now working with him. She's younger than me. And they have a, amazing projects on the ground. And every time I talk to them, I'm so inspired by their positivity because it's mm. very easy to feel completely trampled by everything that's going on. I mean, we're all feeling it to a certain degree with the whole climate crisis. And for them, you know, they've been working on this for decades now and they're still so positive. And it, it's hard work because it's not just a matter of having a few guards like patrolling the land. It's lobbying, dealing with corruption, dealing with big business coming into wilderness areas and wanting to mine. I mean, there are so, so many things to consider. I just want to be able to help them in my little way, which is to try to educate people to the degree that I can about what's happening. Let them know about the work that these people are doing on the ground in India. Cause I did have an idea that I would give up everything and go work in the forests as a researcher. But I ended up getting married and having a baby. So that didn't <laughs> quite work out. Well, how can people connect with your organization or give donations if they want to? There's a website, savingwildtigers.org. And on that website is information about what we have done and what we're doing. And it's very simple and straightforward. Like I said, anything, every dollar that's donated goes entirely into the projects in India. So we don't take any administrative costs and it's entirely voluntarily run by me and by Sunil. Please do take a look there. We're always looking for funding for the type of projects, as I mentioned before, scientific research, human wildlife conflict and preservation of natural habitat. Those are like the three areas. Take a look and you can see for a certain number of dollars what you'll be supporting and, and so on. It's on there. Thank you so much for doing that work. It's really lovely. I've spent some time up in the Himalaya with in a small village where there's some leopard activity. And it's very interesting to hear how people talk about that and to, yes. you know, to talk to people there who are trying to bring more awareness to how magical these creatures are and, you know, their place in the food chain and how we can better support them so that they, they support us. Thank you for that. I, I want to ask you some kind of rapid fire questions as we end here for just for some fun. You know, these are quick answers or whatever first comes to your mind. So are you ready for that? I think so. Okay. <laughs> um, what is one piece of advice and you've shared maybe that you're just thinking about right now that has helped you in your life? Trust your heart. When you're feeling anxious or confused or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? I think I know the answer. Well, the first thing I do is stop moving, physically stop moving, sit down and take three long breaths. I thought you would say, say the name of God, but that's even better because that's before you go to the next level. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is your favorite drink? Coffee. Oh, me too. And, <laughs> and last meal on earth? Kitri. Hey, me too. You and I, <laughs> we're going to have a kitchen <laughs> meal when this is all over. So what, if anything, is totally non-negotiable about your morning routine? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take it. Tell us about a person who inspires you and why. My daughter. 
she is growing into a young adult. She is a young adult. She's going to be 19 and she is 19. She just turned 19. I can't believe it. I am inspired by the depth of thought that the younger generation has and the way in which they're approaching humanity, their, their relationship with the environment, their relationship with family, and their ability to trust in themselves and, and really feel strong in themselves and at the same time understand that they're part of a whole. I feel like they have tremendous awareness about that at a, at a younger age than I did. Very inspired by them for that. Me too. So tell us something people might not know about you. I like disco music. How's that? Awesome. <laughs> That's a good one. What are you reading right I am now? A, what am I reading right now? Oh my God. I am reading... Would you like to see? Oh my gosh. I am reading The Revenge of Gaia. That's one. I am studying the Sri Rudram, which is uh, Vedic chanting. I've just started the one-year course. I am also reading about the inner goddess, trying to uncover the secret of Radha. Ah. I don't know. There's a whole stack of books here. <laughs> well, we'll share those in the show notes too. So if people are interested in digging deeper, they can look into oh, yeah. those. There's another great book called Devotions, which is poetry by Mary Oliver that I love too. Beautiful. So what's something that brings you joy right now? Just the first thing you think of. Talking to people. I, I want to play a song actually going out um, of you singing with your daughter since she's on your album. Maybe you can talk for a moment about Anubhav, the, the name and, um, mm -hmm. you know, why you chose that name. And the song we're going to play is Govinda Jaya Jaya with your daughter Uma Rao Labrec. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that correctly? That's okay. right. <laughs> Anubhav is actually a word that Ma used when she was telling me, uh, talking to me about practice. And uh, as we talked about earlier, she she was very firm about developing a spiritual practice. And she said, we can all do the same practice, but we'll each have our own spiritual experience. That is Anubhav. I love that because each person has their own path into their own heart. We just have to recognize that. And this is where I feel like trusting one's heart is really important. But so, we're so inclined to be distracted by so-and-so and so-and-so and, you know, our reactive behavior that if we stick with the practice and we tune in to the experience that arises, not necessarily while we're doing the practice, but that manifests as a result of doing the practice, then we can stay on our path. So Anubhav is that experience that arises from doing the practice. And it's our own. It doesn't have to be a particular way. It doesn't have to look a particular way. It's what an understanding that arises from within. Anubhav. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to share before we leave, like how people can get in touch or, you know, find you on the internet? 
The best place is always my website, ninaraochant.com, N-I-N-A-R-A-O-chant.com. Also on that website is a link to savingwildtigers.org if anybody's interested in that. But I also have a couple of pieces of things I've written about Kirtan. There's links then to all my social media, which is Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. So, And yeah. people can find you chanting with Krishna Das still right now on the internet pretty regularly. I don't chant with him because oh, okay. we're all isolating. Yeah, we're isolating. So I don't don't chant with him. I moderate, <laughs> but I'm in <laughs> Brooklyn and he's over there. We're not doing anything together and we haven't since March. Are you uh, chanting we did a, online somewhere? I'm chanting. Yep. Okay. I'm chanting. I'm actually chanting. I chant on Facebook. I have a bunch of different events that are coming up and all those events are on the website. So Okay, perfect. Yeah. And many of them are free. So thank you so much, Nina. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. And for me. Thank you, Carla.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Thank you.